Amen. Wow. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We are treading on some sacred ground. And we are just about two passages away from the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the crucifixion of our Lord. We're in the final section of Mark and we're, we're in the, the on-ramp, the preparation section. And we started with the, the enemies of Jesus, then a friend, then an enemy, Judas, the last time. And now we're back in the friend section, the, the, the disciples. And we're looking at the, the characters of the cross. Mark introduces all of these different individuals that sets the stage for this, this, I don't even know the right word. This earth shattering comes to my mind, but that, that's, that, it, it's more than earth shattering. It's, it's, it's eternity changing. It's, it's the, the crucifixion of, of, of Christ. And, and we, we have been looking at these, these six characters and the sovereign designer, as you know, uh, sovereign writer, I should say, at the very end is, uh, there's no specific verse because you can see him woven all through all of these different five characters. And we looked at the plotting rulers and the, the adoring woman, the betraying brother being Judas. And now we're coming to the, to the dense disciples. And the last message will be on Peter, who is very predictable. And we'll get a, a lesson about his denial. I think what's important to, to, to just note in your own mind as you walk through all of these passages is everything is going according to plan. The desire to betray Jesus by the temple rulers has, that's been their intent all the way back since Mark chapter, chapter three, but it was, but it's ramped up intentionally by Jesus himself at the triumphal entry. The anointing of Mary was worship on her part, but Jesus says it was an anointing of his burial beforehand. There's the inability of Judas to betray him, controlled by concealing the, the Passover location. There's the exposure of Judas in the Passover meal. And with the final warning, as we saw, the, the um, verse uh, 21 ends with this extension of mercy where Jesus says to Judas, I know. And now the final Passover meal. And that will be very intentional as well. Jesus is not surprised by anything that's happening. It's His Father planned it and He's executing it. He's predicted it all. In fact, He tells the disciples over and over, three times in the Gospel of Mark, and the last time, right before He comes into Jerusalem. When He comes to Jericho and begins to make the ascent to Jerusalem, He says, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished for he'll be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he'll rise again. That's before he ever even enters Jerusalem. And even the very hours was fixed. In John 7, when Jesus angers the leaders, they, the, the, John 7 says they sought to take him, but they could not. And it was because his hour had not yet come. That's, that's what the Bible says. And in just a few verses, whenever he's praying in the garden, Jesus says, My soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. What hour is he talking about? The hour of his death. It was planned by God and we're watching it verse by verse being, being carried out by our Lord. He was God's lamb and he was to die at the very moment of Passover and that that hour has almost arrived, but before it does, Jesus must eat the Passover with his disciples and that's what we just read. And he transitions it to the new covenant meal. Now, it's very hard in, I mean, Mark only gives us like three verses. But this passage is, this, this scene is in all four Gospels, and it's really hard to, to understand the significance of these, of these few hours, probably about four hours in the life of the Lord. It, during this time in the upper room, they eat the Passover meal. He exposes Judas after three years being undercover. Satan shows up at the meal. There's an argument among the disciples of who would be greatest because they're jockeying for positions of who's going to sit where. Jesus then does that great act of humility of washing the disciples' feet. There's the confrontation that we just heard this morning about Peter, of Peter and his denial. There's the transition to the Lord's Supper from the Passover. There's the instruction of the disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit and about love. And it all ends in John 17 with Jesus' great high priestly prayer where he prays not only for them, but also for us. It includes John 14, which you know well, probably memorized, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. All of that marriage language that, that, that we saw last Sunday night has to do with the marriage supper of the Lamb. I mean, if, there is a, if there's a single four hours of teaching that happens in the life of Jesus and the disciples, I don't know of any other more significant than these than these hours in the in the upper room. I mean, that's some dinner meeting. And it's the very last time he has to prepare them before he dies. That's why so much is packed into this into this period of time. I mean, if you knew that you were going to die in twelve hours, what would you do? Well, I doubt it would be go check something off your bucket list. You know, I want to go skydive one time before I die. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do? Well, you'd probably make sure that you're right with other people. You might call a family member that you're estranged from. Hopefully, at least you should, make sure you're right with God, right? <laughs> you would probably do things that with more intensity, and you would probably do things that, that are most significant, most important for you, and that's what Jesus is doing here with, with His disciples. And tucked within these few verses... There's three significant statements that Jesus makes. There's only three. And they reveal the gravity of what's taking place. And you can see it in verse 23 through 25. That's the only three verses that we're going to cover. There's a, there's a statement about His body, the statement about His blood, and the statement about His kingdom. He gives the basis for unity in His church in the bread. He proclaims the ratification of the new covenant. It's going to be in His blood. And then He makes a promise about a coming kingdom. And so if I was going to outline it, I wouldn't get too fancy. I would just center it around the statements of Christ. I mean, these statements are, are that significant in and of themselves. You, you really don't want to add to them or, or take away. They're, they're self-explanatory. 
We see all of that in three statements at the disciples' last Passover. This is my body in verse 22. The second statement, this is my blood in verse 23 and 24. In verse 26, there will be my kingdom. There's a kingdom coming. And it's packed. And it's powerful. Let's look at the first one. Jesus says, this is my body. And you see this flow, he takes the bread, he gives it to them, and he makes the statement. Look if you would at verse 22. It says, while they were eating, while they were eating the Passover, he took some bread, and after blessing, after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Now let me give you a mental picture of, of, what's, of what's happening here so you can kind of Paint in your mind what what's taking place. This is now Thursday evening. It's dark and it's after the disciples are are with the Lord, and after they've already prepared for the Passover feast, and all of them are there, including Judas. The beginning, he leaves part way through the meal. He couldn't get away undetected, so he's been with the Lord all day. The the lamb's been purchased. It's been sacrificed. At the temple, it's been roasted, the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread, and the salt water. It's all on the table. The, the haro set is complete. That's the pomegranates and the apples and the dates. They've all been, the nuts, they've been crushed. And everything's in place and it's ready to be shared. Now, one of the questions that normally comes up is how can Jesus be, how can Jesus eat the Passover with his disciples and be the Passover lamb the very next day. This is Thursday. We know Jesus dies on Friday. How is that possible? Well, God's thought of everything. According to the Mishnah, the Galilean calendar is sunrise to sunrise. And the Judean calendar, it's the southern Jews, their calendar went from sunset to sunset. And that's how Jesus is able to eat the Passover with his disciples and then become the Passover lamb the next day. It allowed them to keep the Passover, which was commanded. It allowed the time to expose Judas and instruct the disciples. And it allowed him time to establish his supper and explain it. And then dies the Passover lamb the next, the next day. This is still sunrise to sunrise. So this is still part of the Galilean Passover. And then at sunset, we're already now in the, the Judean Passover, sunset to sunset. And so they overlap, and Jesus is right in the middle of it. The tables would have been low to the ground, like in a horseshoe type of, of structure, not in the Da Vinci's picture of, of all of them at, at, at sitting at a table with, with Jesus in the middle. It would have been kind of a, a horseshoe type of, of, of structure with, their, with them, them reclining, leaning into the table with their feet aimed away, and the Passover meal was no longer rushed. It was celebratory. It would have lasted for hours. I said probably about four hours or so. We don't know for sure. But obviously a lot goes on, so we know it was extended. And so here you have this scene. Jesus is is at the center of the horseshoe, if you will. He's the chief guest. There are the chief seats to the to the left and to the right, and all the rest of them gathered around the table, and they're 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 reclining 
And the discussion is the exposition of the Passover. They have the Passover elements, and as the elements are delivered according to traditional Passover, it would be explained what is happening. There's a ritual that they go through, and the explanation of the Passover would remind them of the covenant that God had made with his people. And the, the father, or whoever was the, the chief guest, in this case it would be Jesus, the head, he would give the exposition. He would explain what's happening. And that's what you see. But halfway through, Jesus goes off script. And he's permitted to do that because he's God, you know. I mean, he gave the first script to begin with. And he starts applying the statements to himself and his impending death. So there's really two parts for the Passover meal for Jesus and his disciples. It's the Passover itself to be faithful, because he must eat the Passover, to be a faithful Jew. And then the transition to the Lord's Supper, which is prophetic. It's about what's about ready to take place. It's, in, it's instructive. And you cannot underestimate the gravity of this moment. It's hard for us as Gentiles to grasp it. For 1,500 years, the Jews had faithfully kept the Passover just as God had prescribed in the Exodus until this night. This was the last official Passover. I know it's still celebrated today. This is the last official one. Jesus transforms it into a memorial meal about the cross. This is the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New. This is the end of the Mosaic Covenant. This is the beginning of the New Covenant. This is the last Passover. This is the first communion service. I mean, that is, that's massive. Jesus has spent his entire life in the, the Jewish system, watching lambs sacrifice, knowing that they all pointed to him. And three years ago, he begins the ministry marching toward this moment. And they're about to eat the last lamb, and they're about to eat it together. And within hours, this whole system would be transferred and transitioned to something brand new. He starts by saying the basis of this new thing, this new covenant is Him. Verse 22, While they were eating, He took some bread, some of the bread that was part of the Passover meal, and after blessing it, He broke it and gave it to them. Luke says, He says, Take, eat, this is my body. Luke says, This is given for you. He took some unleavened bread, and He blessed it. Traditional blessing, Blessed are you, Lord God, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread, or from the earth. He breaks it, single loaf, he tears off a piece of that one loaf, and he distributes it, he gives pieces to them. Now I want you to notice that he does not say his body is broken. Nowhere does it say his body is broken. The breaking of bread is not representative of the breaking of Jesus' body. In fact, the Bible specifically tells us not a bone in his body will be, will be broken. The focus is not the... The, the breaking of the bones of Jesus. The focus is the breaking of the bread, and the bread represents His body. It's what the bread represents, and the same bread is shared by all. That's the point. It's the bread, and it's the distribution, the sharing of the bread. He gave it to them. That's the focal point. He broke it, He blessed it, He broke it, and then He gave it to them. And then He tells them what it represents. He's explaining... This new thing, as he would have explained the Passover, what the bitter herbs meant, what the lamb meant, what the, 
what the, the sweetness meant, what the salt water meant. He now takes this, this piece of bread, this single loaf, he tears the piece off, he distributes the bread to all of them, and he says, this is what this bread represents. It, it represents me. Before, he tells them about the, the new covenant. He's saying, I am this bread. I give myself for you. I am the basis. You all, you all share in me. And that's where the, the unity in the new covenant comes from. Because his body was given for all the saints and we all share in the same. We're unified in him. And that's what Ephesians chapter 4 says. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Why? Because we all share in the same Christ. The same body. And that's what the bread represents. The unity in His church. We've all received Christ. That's why it's such a serious sin for disunity in the church. And at the Lord's table, we're reminded His body was given for us and we have all have a part and we've come the same way. That's why Paul rebukes division in 1 Corinthians 11. He's saying that you're eating and drinking damnation to yourself. You're not discerning the body. The Lord's Supper is not a meal that provides grace. It's a memorial. It's, it doesn't bring you into the kingdom. It's a memorial meal for those who are already in the kingdom. The fellowship that we have, the way that we've been made right with God, comes through Christ alone, and we all share with that together. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all in Christ. We have fellowship with the Son, and we're His followers. So do you think that way? It's a question I ask myself. Do you think that way? I understand He's a personal Savior. I understand you have, a, you have an individual relationship with God. But do you think about the church as a whole, or do you think about the church as, as yourself? I'm a part. I'm an individual. It said there's no I in team. I think Jesus is saying there's no me in the church. There are no rights, no agenda, no great or small, no rich or poor, just sinners who have been given a piece of the same loaf of sinless bread. And His death brings us into fellowship with the Father and each other. And each time we eat, we're reminded of that. Now, I think probably at this time, the disciples are, are probably a little perplexed. What exactly is He talking about? I mean, He's going off script. He's giving me a piece of bread. He says, this is... This is my body, and, and take it. But it's not explicit, is it? He, has, he said nothing about the new covenant yet in the meal. But the second statement clears up any questions that they, that they have. And look, if you would, at verse 23. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He mentions the new covenant, and he mentions the application of the atonement. The atonement is applied. The Passover meal, as I said, had to be explained. And Jesus is continuing to explain. He's doing this as the head of the household. The Passover meal begins with a prayer, then a ceremonial washing of the hands, symbolizing cleansing. That's probably where Jesus does the foot washing. We're not told in 
specific. And then there are four cups of wine. The, the first cup of wine is shared, and there, there are four cups in the Passover. And they all echo God's promises from Exodus 6. The first cup, I will bring you out. The second cup, I will deliver you. The third cup, I will redeem you with great judgment. The fourth cup, I will be your God and you'll be my, you'll be my people. And after the second cup, right before they eat, whoever the youngest person in the room was would, would say, why is this night different from any other night? And why the unleavened bread? And then the head of the family would, would give the story of Exodus. He'd give the Haggadah. He would give the exposition, the meaning of all of this. And that's what Jesus is doing. And when Jesus starts explaining, he teaches them the Passover's fulfillment. He, he says, the, after the supper, he took the cup. That's what Luke says. So after eating the Passover meal, this is the third cup. He makes this statement. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for, for many. So again, fulfilling the Passover meal, the Lord explains the Passover and He says the basis of it is the new covenant. This cup represents the new covenant in my blood. It's my blood that will ratify the new covenant. That's what Jesus is saying. I mean, that, that's, that's massive. His body was given or yielded unto God as an offering that we all share in, and the shedding of His blood ratifies the, the, the new covenant. Without the shedding of blood, Leviticus says, there is no remission of sin, and without the application of blood, the covenant is not ratified. The covenant is a promise that God makes two people, or two people make together, and then you see this scene in... in when God makes the covenant with Abraham, when he puts him to sleep, he, he, he takes the, 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 the animal, he kills the animal. God says, separate the pieces of the animal to the right and to the left, and then walk between the pieces. And God alone walks between the pieces with the covenant of Abraham. And what's happening is they make promises. I promise to do this. I promise to do that. We covenant together. And then the animal is killed as a sacrifice and then they walk between the, the blood pieces. They walk between the, 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 the sacrifice holding hands, and they're saying, as they walk through the, the holding of, uh, walk through the, the, the dead sacrifice, the sacrifice that was killed, may this happen to me if I ever violate the principles or the, the, the conditions of my promise. And the blood was, was applied. And Jesus says, my blood, will ratify a new promise, a new covenant that I'm making. I want you to notice that Jesus passed a single cup and they all drink. There's the unity again. You see that in verse 23? And he'd taken the cup, he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. Now, that's different. Historical... Passover records say everybody has an individual cup. Jesus intentionally chooses a single cup to emphasize there's one mediator of the covenant and everyone comes through that one mediator. Everyone drinks from Christ. It also says they all drank, contrary to the perversion of Roman Catholicism. Have you ever watched the Eucharist service? where they all come and the priest puts the wafer in everybody's mouth, but you never see a cup? 
Well, that's because the priest drinks on your behalf or on their behalf. No one drinks the drinks from the cup. Only the priest drinks from the cup. But that's not what's happening here. He gave it to them. They all drank from it. I don't drink in your place. Jesus stands in your place. He shed His blood in your place. And so we all share in the cup. So what would the disciples be thinking? Well, he mentions this, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. They, they clearly would have heard the, an echo of the first covenant in, in Exodus, Exodus 24, verse 8. I mean, I mean, they, they're good Jews. They know exactly what's happening before the, before the, uh, following the death angel passing over and the Exodus, God made a covenant with his people. And the covenant was sealed with blood. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. After God made the promises and the people agreed to the promises, animals were were killed, blood was taken, and it was sprinkled on the people. Behold the blood of the covenant. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. They would have clearly thought Exodus 24. Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these, of these words. The terms of the covenant were spoken and the blood was sprinkled on the people who are now under that covenant. And yet the difference there is that covenant was made with the blood of animals. And Jesus says this is a new covenant in my blood. And that's the problem with the old. No animal could ever remove divine judgment and no law could ever convert the heart. Only the law, the only thing the law does is a mirror to show us our need for this new covenant. And no animal can ever remove divine judgment. They, they, that, those sacrifices remind us that God delivers by a substitute and that substitute's innocent. And the fact that it happens year after year after year reminds us that it was inadequate. I mean, that's the purpose. Why do they have to do it year after year after year? To remind them it's not done. There's still one who has has to come. God is holy, sin has a penalty, divine wrath is coming, and judgment can be averted by an innocent substitute, and this innocent substitute doesn't fix the problem. There's another one that has to come. And Jesus is saying, I am that substitute. It's my blood, not the blood of animals, not the blood of bulls of goats. that can never take away sin, but the blood of the Lord. And it's applied by faith. Look at what else he says in verse 24. Here's the application of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. There's the ratification of the covenant. It will be in the blood of Jesus Christ, the new covenant will be ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ, and it will be poured out for many. It will be applied to believers. Mark says it's shed for many. Luke says it's shed for you. Jesus speaking to his disciples. That's the application of the atonement. Now, unless you're a universalist and think everyone will be saved, the death of Jesus is applied to those who trust Christ, right? I mean, that's who gets the benefits of the cross. The, the death of Jesus was sufficient for the whole world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 
if the whole world would have believed, then the blood of Christ was sufficient to cover all of the sins. So the gospel is to be preached to all and offered to all. But the death of Jesus Christ is only for those who believe. It's applied specifically. The blood is efficacious. It's, it, it works. It covers the sins. It takes away the sins of those who, who believe. The whole world will not believe. But as many as did, John says, to them he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Mark says it applied to the many. God knew exactly who Christ's blood would be applied to. He knows everything. And just as the Passover was not for unbelievers, but for God's people, the Lord's Supper is not for unbelievers, it's for Christ's church. That's why you're not to eat unworthily. You're, 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 you're not to eat the Lord's table if you're, if you're not redeemed, if you're not converted. Because the blood hasn't been applied to you. And all of that, all that do come to Him will be with Him again in the kingdom of God. There will be my kingdom. The final statement, verse 25. It's hard to pick one that's more significant. One is now, one is the new covenant, and one is the future kingdom. 25, truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In verse 24, there's a cup that represents death. This is my blood that will be shed. And now here's a cup of future glory. He's talking about a cup that, that he's going to drink from in the future. One is shared now, one shared in the future after his vindication in the kingdom. And the reason the disciples were always all about the kingdom is now the time for the kingdom is because Jesus keeps talking about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And so here he is. And there's a literal kingdom coming. He knows exactly what's happening. He promises exactly what's coming. There's a future kingdom, and it's yet to come. And he says, in that kingdom, a risen Messiah will be eating and drinking in it. God made an irrevocable covenant with Abraham. He promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing. And through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God also promised David an everlasting throne. And a new covenant was promised where he would save and sanctify Israel unto himself. Jeremiah 31, 33, But this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in them and I will write it on their hearts and they, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And all of these covenants have their ultimate fulfillment in the millennial kingdom of Christ. And if you want... You want to see that vividly, you listen to last Sunday night and come tonight. The seed, which is Christ, has come. The new covenant has been opened by His blood. Now for anyone and in the millennial kingdom, Christ will reign upon the throne of David as the promised seed and David's Lord 
And he'll reign in the land over all of Israel and all the nations of the earth will be, will be blessed. What a Savior. What a plan. What can we possibly say to these things? Well, I think verse 26 gives us a clue. Look at verse 26. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They're in the city and they go over to the Mount of, to the Mount of Olives. What were they singing? Well, we know exactly what they were singing. The final psalm of the Passover. And that would be Psalm 136. So I want you to turn back to Psalm 136. And let's look at what they were singing to help us see what could we say to such an amazing plan. Psalm 136. We're not going to read it all. We don't have to read it all to get the point. As you look at Psalm 136, what they're singing as they leave, what do you see repeated over and over and over? His mercy endures forever. His loving kindness is everlasting. His mercy endures forever. Whatever your, however your English says it, it's the covenant love. The loyal faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Twenty-six times they're repeating, His mercy endures forever. After the last Passover and the first communion, His mercy endures forever. That's what they're singing. And where were they going? They're going to the Garden of Gethsemane in the Mount of Olives. And in order to get there, they have to cross the Kidron Valley. They have to cross the Brook Kidron. Josephus tells us during the Passover, an average of 250,000 lambs were sacrificed in the temple during this a little bit longer than 24-hour period. Because you've got the Galilean and the southern Jews. That's how we know we get the estimates of a million to two million people because it's one lamb for every ten individuals. So there's 250,000 lambs, and that's how many people are there. 250,000 lambs being sacrificed in the temple. That's a very graphic scene because these lambs had to be slain in a two-hour period of time to meet the biblical requirements. And they had to be killed in the same place, in the temple. You can't kill it at your home and then bring it in and let the priest bless it. It's being killed in the temple. And when the, the priests are there in their linen garments, after, as they're killing the lambs, they're slinging the blood on the altar. And then they're killing another one and slinging the blood on the altar. I did the math. It's anywhere from 18 to 30 lambs per second that are dying. The amount of blood that was flowing is mind-boggling. Each lamb has about seven pints of blood, 150-pound sheep, seven pounds of blood. The priests and the entire temple area was covered. That's 220,000 gallons of blood coming out of the temple in a two-hour period of time. You don't think sin's serious? 
There's such an enormous amount that it poured from the altar platform and they actually carved grooves in the temple mount to carry the blood out of the temple area or they would be knee-deep in it. And so this blood is being carried out. eventually drains out of the temple. And you know where it drains? It drains in the Kidron Valley. And historians said the brook Kidron ran red with blood for several days after the Passover. And to get the Garden of Gethsemane, to get there, they had to cross the Kidron Valley. And so, as they are walking from the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper, across the blood-filled stream of all the lambs that could never take away sin, they're walking with a single lamb that was about to die that would ratify once for all the new covenant to whoever would repent and believe. And they're singing, His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. Twenty-six times they're saying this as they're stepping across the Lamb's blood. And do you know what? His mercy is still enduring today. And if you'll come to the one Lamb and trust in His blood alone, God has mercy for you. But outside of that, there is no mercy in the blood of bulls and goats. There's no mercy in rituals. There's no mercy in rituals, whether it's the Lord's table. It looks, it's called the Lord's table. There is no mercy found in your own works. There's only mercy found in Christ. And it is greater than all of your sin. I don't care what you've done. He'll wash you clean. He'll change the spots of a leopard. But you have to come. Do you know that Judas and the soldiers also crossed the Kidron Brook to get to Jesus and betray Him in the garden? What a vivid image. Trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant. They trampled underfoot the blood of the old covenant and then they trampled underfoot the blood of the new covenant. And you trample underfoot the blood of Christ, there is no salvation outside of Him. They don't turn Him away. Mercy that will endure forever now and all the way into eternity and forever and ever and ever. Jesus describes the purpose for His coming. He was to be a sin offering. His body was given. His blood shed. His life is an atonement. And His kingdom that is coming, and that was all part of God's plan, and it's offered to you. If you'll come, and you bow your heads.